one of the things that I actually used to ask people when they would ask, what advice would you give me if I want to break into film or TV? And my answer would be, how high is your pain threshold? I think it is a cynical way of looking at it because, you know, there's a lot of pain and rejection along the way, but there's also, when you create something, it's something that is like no one can take away from you. I'm John Frechette, and welcome to Best Laid Plans, the podcast that speaks to successful creatives in various industries about the moments in their careers when they had to pivot, compromise, or make a comeback when things didn't go as planned. Our guest today is Zee Chun, a young but seasoned TV veteran whose writing work includes Gotham, Little America, Once Upon a Time, and Cashmere Mafia. A true Renaissance man, having worked in fine art, comics, and indie film at various points in his career. It only makes sense that a talent like Z would add showrunner to his CV, executive producing and writing Gremlins, Secrets of the Mogwai, the upcoming animated prequel to the famed 80s creature feature. But for Z, who grew up outside of Boston and didn't believe a job in show business was possible, the professional journey wasn't without its many twists, turns, and hurdles. Having made a name for himself on the independent film circuit with his debut feature, Children of Invention, and sophomore film, Cold Comes the Night, starring Brian Cranston, Z came of age during a time when the film industry was facing a seismic shift, forcing him to make some equally life-altering decisions, including how to fulfill his creative dreams while also finding some semblance of career stability. Now, here's Z with his story. When I was a kid, I always liked to draw. And when I was about 10, 11, um, I started getting really into comic books. And that was kind of the first time that I was like, someone's got to write the words that all the people say. And so I was like, okay, well, I I mean, I I guess I'll try that. And that's kind of how I started getting into storytelling. We had a great AV department and I was like a big AV nerd. And so I just started like picking up the cameras there and borrowing them for the day and shooting stuff. And, you know, I grew up outside of Boston. I didn't know anybody who made movies or TV. And it was so far removed from everything that I had grown up with in terms of even thinking like, oh, I can go and do that as a career. I went to Columbia undergrad and part of the reason was, you know, I wanted to go to college where all like my filmmaking heroes had made their name. But also like, you know, when I went to visit New York, there were art house cinemas and, you know, there was maybe like one or two in Boston, but not like New York where there's like a Tarkovsky movie on the big screen and also the video rental places. You know, there was a place on 103rd and Broadway so I could walk there from my dorm. And at the time it was 250 uh, per rental. Every time you rented one movie, you would get another one for free. And every night I would watch two movies in the common room, like from midnight to like three in the morning, four in the morning. When I graduated from Columbia, I didn't really know exactly what to do. Moving to LA seemed really scary to me. I didn't really know anyone there. So I moved to Brooklyn, like a lot of my friends did. And I just made a schedule for myself. I was like, I'm gonna make a no budget short film every six months and write a feature film every nine months. And I did that for three and a half years. I made 12 short films. The budgets were like a hundred, $200, you know. And 
Not a single one of those got into any film festivals. For years, it was like, am I doing the right thing? What am I doing wrong? But I just had this feeling that if I just kept doing it, that I would do something that worked. And my 11th short film, which was Window Breaker, you know, it was a story about a couple kids, latchkey kids, who are like seven and five, and they're left at home while their mom is working. And meanwhile, there's like a wave of break-ins that are happening in the neighborhood. You know, I made it for 600 bucks, shot in my childhood home. My mom is in it. There's a bunch of kids in it that are just kids from the neighborhood where I grew up. And it was rejected by 25 film festivals before Sundance accepted it. And there were days where I'd key into my mailbox and there'd be like two, three rejections just kind of sitting there on top of each other. But what was funny was when Sundance accepted the short, then all those other film festivals accepted it for the following year. And it was Kim Yutani who, who called, which was like, I mean, I'll never forget that phone call just after years of just like really feeling aimless. And she was like, you got into Sundance? And I said, I'm going to pass out. And she said, please don't do that. And it was, it was one of the best phone calls I'd ever gotten. Because I hadn't gone to grad school, I think grad school sometimes will build up the expectation of what happens when you go to a film festival. Because, you know, you've seen just the success stories from the people who've gone through that program. You know, those are always the examples that the professors give. They never say the flip side of it, which is somebody who has a film in a film festival, then they never work again. And so I think I was actually kind of lucky in that I had just grinded, you know, for three and a half, four years, because I kind of knew that this was not going to be the be all end all. And I do remember talking to other short filmmakers and, and you know, some of them were amazing. Some of them I've kept in touch with to this very day. But there were people who were at the festival who literally said to me, well, I'm not going to do a deal unless it's a three-picture deal. And those people have not worked. I remember at the time I had the idea for the feature version of Window Breaker, and I was talking about how I wanted to put it together. And I was like, I just, I want to make it really low risk for an investor. I want to make it for like $150,000, maybe even $50,000. And I was talking to another short filmmaker who did not skip a beat and said, I can't think of making a movie unless it's more than $5 million budget. And that filmmaker has not made a feature. No one's going to just hand you something because you had a movie at a film festival. You have to use the fact that you had a movie at a film festival to make those opportunities for yourself. You know, I had my short at Sundance. I got a manager out of that. Looking back, like that manager was really great for me, but I don't think he really wanted to rep me at first because I was just doing these kind of like artsy indie film projects. But then I floated that I had a pilot that I had co-written with my friend, Mike. And we got staffed from New York with this pilot. They were looking for somebody for a show called Cashmere Mafia, which was an ABC show with Lucy Liu. You know, it was one of these things, I think they were down to the wire. We found out that we had an interview on Thursday. We interviewed via phone on Friday. Mike was still at another job. He, he took the phone interview in the stairwell, you know, with a piece of paper in front of his mouth so that it wouldn't echo. We got the job on a Saturday. We 
flew out on Sunday and we were in the room on Monday. So it all happened really fast. And what was really interesting about being in a writer's room was, you know, these were like the first time I had met real working writers who had like normal lives. They had families. They weren't like, they weren't like me. They weren't like a 26-year-old kid who had no pathway of even figuring out how to have any kind of financial stability. They had mortgages and they had been working for 20 years, 30 years sometimes. And that was really interesting to me. It was just a a room where you go and you work every day doing something that you really love and then you get paid for it. My head was still in doing film because I had not done a feature yet. And so, you know, I was writing Children of Invention at nights on the weekends. I was really driven. I really wanted to make that movie. And the writer's strike happened. And I moved back to New York after about five months on that show I said, I don't know when this is going to start up again or if it will ever start up again. And so I said, I'm going to make this movie no matter what. And, and then we shot it the following summer. That was a dream, right? Uh, you make a feature film, pray to God that it gets into Sundance. And that happened. Children of Invention played at Sundance in 2009. It was also a very autobiographical story, kind of based on the experiences of me and my sister growing up with my mom. We sold the movie and we had to kind of like self-distribute it, hitting the film festival circuit. I was learning a lot about how to handle distribution. I learned a lot of business acumen. And I started getting invited to this thing called the New York Director's Dinner. It was this thing where every couple weeks, every month, all the directors in New York kind of get together and they have a dinner at someone's house or at a restaurant. In some ways, it was really great. And that, like, I met all of my filmmaking heroes who were in New York. Like, got to hang out with Mary Heron, you know, American Psychos. Like, one of my favorite movies. She was like so sweet and so supportive. But as we started going around the room, because everyone kind of talks about, you know, what they're working on, some of these filmmakers had not made a movie in five to seven years, you know? And in the indie film space, that is just kind of understood that sometimes you can't get a movie made. And people had to support themselves in other ways. Some taught, some were editors, and what I realized from those meetings was that almost nobody who was a writer-director could make a living doing independent film. And that was a real wake-up call for me, like a real wake-up call. And I just remember thinking, what the hell am I going to do? Because this is the thing that I've been working towards for the last 15 years, right? So I was thinking, okay, well, I, I honestly have no idea what I'm gonna do. At the same time, my wife told me that she was pregnant. And the next day I was like, we are gonna move to Los Angeles. You can work there, I can work there. I'm gonna get back into television. Television's much more interesting than it was even four years ago, three years ago. And it was starting to be that beginning of that golden age. And whether I understood it or not, I was kind of like, there seems to be something here. And it's a way for me to work every day, get better at what I'm doing and make some money, you know? And I started thinking about directors like John Ford and these classic film directors. They would make three, four movies a year. 
And I just didn't know how I could get better at what I was doing if I was making a movie every four years, five years, six years. I did the same thing I did back with my shorts. I said, I'm gonna buy a ticket for six months from now and I'm gonna write three pilots between now and then. And that's what I did. And I moved back out to LA and two of those pilots never did anything for me, but the first one I wrote sold to CBS and that's how I got my foot in the door. That year I had three showrunner meetings and no offers. And the next year I had three showrunner meetings and three offers. And I did one thing differently in those interviews. So that year where I got all those showrunner interviews and, and no offers, second I would walk into the room, they would say, well, you just directed a movie with Brian Cranston. What is that like? And I would just talk about it. I just thought they wanted to hear about it and I would like kind of talk about the production. And then the meeting would go well, but then I would never get an offer. One thing I am good at is like, if I get a certain number of rejections, I try to figure out what I'm doing wrong with it. And it just came to me one day. I was like, why did this not work? I felt like I was perfect for some of these shows. And I just tried to put myself in the shoes of the person sitting across the table from me. And that was where it really clicked. And what I realized was they're looking at me and saying like, this person's not gonna wanna be on staff. You know, it's like a grass is always greener thing. Like he just directed a movie. He's gonna go leave after six months to direct his next movie. The next year, the change I made was, they would still ask that question. Oh, you directed a movie with Brian Cranston. What was that like? And I would say, it was great, but you know what? It took me four years to make the movie. Four years to make two hours worth of story is not enough for me. I want to sit in a room and I want to do 22 hours of story over the course of a year. That's the only thing I'm interested in. And, and that was the year where things turned around. But it's one of those things where being very active in how I kind of controlled that message was really important. I did find the camaraderie of the room really appealing, especially after having, you know, those years early on, right after college, grinding like by myself, you know, with no one to talk to, not even being able to get information about how to break into the industry. I mean, having information that was that accessible to you, I thought was really helpful. And that's when I kind of pivoted from thinking like, okay, I'm just gonna like sell a bunch of shows and then do it that way. I told my agents that I wanted to go out for staffing again, and I wanted to be in the room to break 100 episodes of TV. And I wanted that experience because the next time I developed, I wanted to confidently say, you don't have to worry about me as a showrunner, I know what I'm doing. And that's what I did for the next five years. I always kind of viewed storytelling as a really personal thing that almost was like a secret. You know, it's a secret until it kind of like is made into the movie or until you're talking to actors or your producers about it. And it was always a very insular experience for me. And I think it was really hard to go into a room where every idea is so public. You might think, well, if you directed a movie, you might be great in the writer's room because you were able to talk your crew and your department heads and your actors, your producers through everything that you wanted. But then you go into something else and it's not your show and it's not your vision. And stories are just broken a different way in TV. And I just didn't know how to do it, you know? And 
I don't think I was learning quick enough in the room for those first two, three years. I wasn't speaking up enough in the room. I think it was hard going from directing my own movie to being like a very low-level writer. And then my third year of staffing, I just thought, you know, I'm probably going to get fired if I just don't change my behavior. So I'm just going to say whatever I want to say in the room. I'm not going to worry about it anymore because I feel like my fear of getting shot down in the room was making me not be able to do my job. And so it was like flipping a light switch. You know, I, I went from being somebody who was kind of invisible in the room to somebody who was really present. I went from co-producer straight to supervising producer because I was doing so much in the room. And I think that was where Warner Brothers looked and said, this person's like really valuable, actually. When they look for potential writers for new projects, they have like list of approved writers and people that they like working with. And you know, when Gremlins came through the Warner Brothers animation pipeline and they were looking for people to develop that property, I was on the Warner Brothers list. And I also had socially just randomly had dinner with the executive at Amblin a few months earlier. So he was like, oh, I, I know that name. And they're like, well, Warner Brothers likes him and let's just bring him in. And that's how that kind of came around. But, you know, when I went back in there after those five years, I was really confident. I've done 23 episodes a year in the past, and it's like 10 episodes eminently doable for me. I was really glad that I had done the work and been there and learned from the other people who were, you know, genuinely brilliant in the room. I don't think that I started off as the best writer or the best director or the best manager of people but I do think that I worked really hard at it and I learned from those failures. But at every stage, certainly, did I wish that the 10 short films before Winterbreaker had gotten to some film festivals when I had worked on them for three and a half years and had nothing to show for it? Yeah, definitely. You know, did I wish that Children of Invention had been like distributed by a big distributor? Like, definitely. But then you start to look back at it and I think that... You know, I'm really happy with where I am in my career now. And I think that if I had not had all those times where I felt really regretful to the point where I really thought hard about how I had to change in terms of my worldview and what I thought my career was going to be, I, I wouldn't be where I am now. Be sure to check out Z's work, such as his films Children of Invention and Cold Comes the Night, Series like Gotham, Once Upon a Time, and Little America, as well as the entire lineup of critically acclaimed graphic novels at TKO Studios, an American comic publisher that Z runs with co-founder Salvatore Simeone. Gremlins, Secrets of the Mogwai will be released later this year through HBO Max and Cartoon Network. Best Laid Plans is produced by Todd Luoto and myself. Music for this episode is courtesy of Blue Dot Sessions. Artwork by Tim Ahern. You can find us on the web at bestlaidpod.com. And if you liked what you heard today, consider supporting us on Patreon. Thanks for listening. Ooh.